Yeah, so I, I teach at Cedarville University uh, along with uh, your, your other speakers. Um, so I, I was glad to have the opportunity. I teach philosophy and theology there um, primarily. Uh, so I teach philosophy for the other departments mostly, and then I teach theology within our department. Um, and what we're going to talk about today is something that's pretty near and dear to me. Uh, one of the reasons is I'm researching in the area, so you always want to pretend like what you're working on actually matters. So you, you have to talk about it a lot more. Um, and, and the other thing is um, I actually am not from Ohio. I've been here for 10 years teaching, but um, I was born and raised in Southern California, and uh, as was my wife. And so uh, most of my schooling has been in secular schools. Uh, my my uh, second master's and my PhD were at schools that would very much not agree with what goes on at Cedarville. Uh, one of those being Yale, uh, Yale Divinity School, and the other one being Claremont Graduate in Southern California. So they just, it's a very different way in which they perceive what we are and what matters about us. And it, it, it's so divergent, and it's getting so much more divergent that it's hard for us to even have conversations. And so I think it's important for us to, as a church, think about these types of issues just so that we're able to share the gospel in a, in a more clear fashion. We're able to, to pick the right issues to work hard on, uh, to pick the right issues to fight for, and, and to think about what's the best way for us to embody the hope that we have in the gospel with individuals who are losing hope. Okay, and so uh, that's some of what we're going to talk about today. So let me pray for our time, and, and then we'll get started. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the opportunity to study your word together, Lord. I thank you for this church and its willingness to uh, think about how we can be missions-minded in the world, how we can share your gospel in the places that you have us, but also be involved with the movement of your word beyond our borders, beyond our towns, to peoples who need to hear what it means to have hope in a future. Lord, I ask that you watch over our time, allow it to be helpful, and allow us to uh, steward those things that you provided for us, uh, for your glory. In your son Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So the, the amount that our culture has changed in the last probably 10 years is about as fast as I've ever seen it. Like, if you just look historically, it's very quick. It's interesting, like, I'm a philosopher, so I'm always looking at philosophical movements, and philosophical movements have been getting faster and faster. Part of it is because we have more people who are able to talk with one another, and that's a lot, letting a lot of ish, uh, ideas propagate. Right, so if you take a look at what goes on for the first 1,500 years uh, after Christ, it's a lot of similar ideas or similar foundations. You get towards the Renaissance, a few new things pop up. You get to the 17th century, and you start to get to modernism in philosophy, and that leads to enlightenment. Even that has a you know, good 150-year span. 19th century has certain things, but by the time you get to the 20th century, its movements are measured in decades instead of hundreds of years. And uh, I think the issue of the self is even more so than most, right? The two issues that seem to be moving very quick in our society that it ha historically hasn't moved very quickly is secularization. And that, that movement will probably continue till 2040 to 2050, okay? It'll slow down probably in the United States in those, uh, sometime around then because uh, for sociological reasons. Christians have more children. Religious people have more children and because immigrants that come into the uh, United States are overwhelmingly religious. And so those mean that secularization will probably slow down just for, for those reasons. But the other issue that's popping up and moving very quickly is the issue of what do we think about when we think about who we are? The issue of the self, and that's moving very quickly. Uh, this is a, a quote that was actually um, uh, borrowed and, and copied and changed a bit, but uh, there is something more powerful than the brute force of bayonets it is the idea whose time has come and hour struck. Victor Hugo used this, this quote, uh, a version of this quote. And, and I think that's what it is. A lot of different ideas were floating around in America that were able to kind of coalesce. And now it seems like this idea that we can define who we are just by choice now has a lot of forces behind it. And that's allowed for a lot of movement very quickly. So what we're going to take a look at today is we're just going to take a look at these generally three areas. Uh, the character of the modern self. 
the character of the modern self, and then the outcomes of the modern self, and then the response. A lot of it I'm going to spend on is how do we as Christians, what do we do in churches, what do we do on missions in order to work on this type of issue, just to serve others well who are struggling with what they are, okay? Um, this is just kind of an ish, the, the issue that we have, the, the kind of contemporary um, a play field, if you, if you want, uh, must. Um, we have rampant misunderstandings of what makes us what we are. A lot of people misunderstand that. Okay? It's interesting, historically, it was understood that you can choose some things about yourselves, but there's some things you can't choose, right? So that I'm a professor, I get to choose that. That I'm a human, that I am a male, that I am a, a, a living being that's a thinking being, I don't get to choose any of those things. Right? And what happens is the sphere of what we get to choose about ourselves and the sphere about what is just chosen for us have changed. The amount that we think that we are just born with has shrunk, and the amount that we have thought that we can actually change about ourselves has, as a society in America, and the West specifically, has, uh, has broadened. And that's caused a lot of people to think that simply by choice, they can change more things about themselves than they can. Okay? And, and so you see that in entire communities, um, and, and we're going to talk about how that plays itself out. Secondly, dialogue between parties uh, who disagree on matters of self is suffering under the weight of diverging ideas of what constitutes identity. Meaning that it's hard for us to even talk to certain people because of the way that they run identity. It makes discussion almost impossible. We're using words differently. The standards for what constitutes a good argument versus a bad argument is changing. Do you see that? Like, for example, if you think that I get to define everything, if I think I get to define everything about myself, then your arguments actually mean nothing to me. The only thing that matters is how I feel about myself. So that means I'm going to be less amenable to reasons, to arguments, okay? And, and that's what you're having. That's why you're seeing some of this. Where's a lot of this play this playing itself out? It's on social media where you don't need to make an argument. You have so many characters to make a claim. And then you leave that as an opinion, and then you move on. And so it's making a dis discussion with people who disagree with us uh, even more difficult. Uh, thirdly, there's a weaponization of offense that has uh, uh, led to attempts at forced submission. So um, people will try to find a way in which they are the victim in whatever is going on. And, that, and the way that they define victimhood is pretty broad, meaning you disagreeing with me, and, with me is probably enough for me to be a victim and you're oppressing me. And that has led to a ton of, uh, of changes in the way that things function within society, within universities, within public education. All of these things are, are rapidly changing, okay? Um, here's an example. So uh, this is a side note. So I'm half Japanese, half Caucasian, so I'm going to talk pretty freely about um, being a minority and being white. Uh, just, we're going to have to be open with that. I apologize. Um, my mom, she's mostly Danish. My dad's uh, full Japanese. Um, it, it's interesting because my, my wife is full Japanese, and our kids are just now all over in terms of what they look like. So two of my daughters very clearly look like Japanese girls, and my other daughter and my son look clearly Caucasian. It's very hard to tell that. Um, and so um, when my mom used to take all the kids out, people would be like, oh, it's her grandchildren and their two friends. And like, no, they're her grandchildren too. And then when my mother-in-law, who's full Japanese, would take them out, it was the exact opposite. Uh, but anyway, um, when I was at uh, Claremont Graduate University, I took a class called Film and the Construction of Self. And it was, uh, some lectures were amazing, some were just awful. And when I was there, um, taking coursework, I remember I was, uh, there was a lecture about a very particular science fiction film that came out the same year that The Matrix came out called Existence, and it was a, it's a movie that is really gory, so I don't, I had to watch it for the, the, the class, but it's really gory, but it's, it's basically about virtual reality and not being able to tell reality from what's fiction, which is a very actually apropos issue right now. It was very forward-looking, but anyway, when we're discussing that, um, we were discussing it, and one of the, the uh, female students in the class said, she raised her hand, she says, it's pretty clear that this movie is about the oppression of minorities, which is not what the movie was about. It was about virtual reality. 
And uh, the teacher, who was a Canadian-American lady, Caucasian lady, she said, well, I don't think that's what it's about because the director said this is what it's about. And, and she talked about the, the, the uh, interviews that he did and the articles that he wrote related to it. And uh, the student said, well, you only think that because you're white. And to a, to a professor, which, by the way, that's utter guts. Like, even if you believe that, would you say that to the professor in front of everyone? So it's intriguing. So when that happened, I raised my hand, and I'm like, well, I'm only half white. So I, I think she's right. That's just, what the, that's just what the director said it's about. And she said, well, you only think that because you're male. And so I'm like, well, okay. So I just started packing my stuff up. And the teacher's like, why are you packing up? We're not done. And I'm like, well, I'm done because I can't be involved with this class. Only some people are allowed to talk. Only some people are allowed to, to, to discuss. So what are we even doing here? So I just picked up my stuff and left. And I didn't come back for like a month, which was just really an excuse for me not to go to class. So I come back about a month later. And uh, when I came in, uh, it's funny because the professor's like, uh, she's like standing at the door. She's like, Josh, can I speak to you? And I'm like, oh, this might be the time I lose the chance to get my PhD. And so she kind of takes me aside and she's like, thank you very much. And then she just walks in. And I'm like, oh, okay, well, then I think I'll do okay in this class. But it, but it is becoming a more common issue that uh, every ethnicity, both male and female, are trying to weaponize offense to try to force other people to do what they want. And that's making it very difficult to have these types of conversations. Lastly uh, on that slide is the momentary existential crisis has turned into the persistent loss of self. That's a very complicated statement. What I mean by that is we have that idea of an existential crisis. If you don't know who you are, it's very hard for you to live your life. And we'll talk about why that's the case, right? Um, you always hear, like, see these things, like, in movies or TV shows where someone's like, who am I? And if they don't know the answer, it becomes very difficult for them to take. But because we've destabilized what we are so much, it's not just that I momentarily or in this, after this one event, ask who, I'm, am I, who am I? It's some people are led to only be asking who am I always for the entirety of their life. And the difficulty of dealing with that is what's in some ways in our culture feeding in to all of the struggles that we seem to be having with anger, anxiety, and depression. Okay? And this, so we, we need to think about what does it mean for us to have a self really to know what we are and to be able to offer people the chance of being stable. They could know who they are, and it can be threatened if they know their creator, okay? And so uh, this is the character of uh, the modern self, okay? This is the significance of identity to us. We relate to ourselves in light of our identities, okay? So this is what we sometimes call a self, right? So whatever I am um, doesn't just define me, it's also going to be, like, in terms of the way I live my life, how I perceive myself will define me. Because, for example, if you misunderstand who you are, you're going to act in certain ways. Uh, the, the way that I try to explain this is my, my second days, I, I, uh, Southern California, is a, it, we snowboard more than, more than ski. We have mountains. Like, people here are like, hey, we have mountains. And I'm like, I haven't seen anything that's in the ballpark of a mountain. Uh, it, it really has to get above 7,000 feet for me to consider it a mountain. So we used to go to the Sierra Nevada mountains, and we'd go snowboarding there in Mammoth Lakes, California. Uh, but one time, my brothers and I, the second day I went snowboarding, they said, we're going to go up to uh, Utah for a couple days. And so we went to Bryan Head, Utah, and Park City. And in Bryan Head, Utah, and southern, uh, uh, southern Utah, great snowboarding area, we were snowboarding one day, and I was doing okay where I could get down the hill without falling. And we were getting towards the end of the day, and there was this big jump right at the bottom of the, at the, the uh, run. And my brothers are like, we think you're good enough. You're good enough to, to go off that. And I'm like, I'm pretty sure this is my second day. They're like, yeah, but you're not like every other second day. By the way, they were lying. Uh, so they're like, this is not like, you're, this is not like, you're not like every other second day new snowboarder. You're really good. You can do it. So I'm like, hey, maybe I can do it, right? So I go off this, and I knock myself out. Long story short, I go up, immediately turn to the side, and then I just hit the ground. And my perception of myself, my actual self is newest snowboarding, not very coordinated. My perception of myself is, oh, I'm pretty good. I probably can do this. So it affects my choices, my actions. It affects what I desire, des decide to go after. Do you see that? So it's not just our identities, like what we actually are. It's the way that we deal with our identities, our misunderstandings, 
or the, the degree we're correct on our identities that will affect the way that we live, okay? So uh, here are some of the reasons why identity matters to us. We live in light of those perceived identities. We live in light of our, what we consider ourself. Identities help us to interpret the world. Our identities help us to interpret the world, right? So when I look out at this world, part of it's based on what, who I think I am in this room. You see that? Even my relationships with you, I I see you as other Christians that we're trying to come together with the the gospel. Why? I see you as other Christians because I perceive myself to be a Christian. And yeah, and, and and the way that I relate to you is going to be largely defined not just by who I think you are, but who I think I am. Do you see that? If I were to see my wife and think, oh, she is a wife, but I don't see me as her husband, then that would be a tragic misunderstanding of the relationship. So my perception of who I am actually affects the way that I interpret the world, the way that I deal with relationships, what types of actions I choose, like whether I go off of a hill being a terrible snowboarder or not, my perception of myself. If I think I'm a good singer, I'll be involved with worship ministry. I am not involved with worship ministry. Why? Because I have correct understanding of my inability to sing. Why do I come in a place like this? Because I just get to talk. You guys don't have to hurt alongside of me when I sing, right? Uh, and, and then lastly, identities help us to have stability in changing circumstances because we have to deal with so many differing things in the world. We have to interpret so many relationships and we have to re- interpret so many events that are constantly moving. What gives us the stability to be able to deal with those? Knowing what we really are in relationship to those things. Do you see that? So if identities matter this much, then you could see why a mistaken identity is so dangerous. You could see why it's so important for us to know what our identity is, right? Uh, I think we a lot of times tell people, you need to have your identity in Christ. That is absolutely true. But sometimes people don't realize how identity actually affects them when they think that. If you know that you are Christ, it changes the way that you see the world. It changes the way that you view relationships. It changes, obviously, the way that you view yourself and how you deal with action, your actions, right? All of those things are affected by identity, right? And then not only that is we tend to understand our identities in light of our objects of worship. The things that matter to us the most begin to define us. So, for example, if my job was the most important thing to me, it is not, by the way, it's, it is important to me. I don't want to lose my job, but it's not the most important thing. If my job is the most important thing to me, then if someone were to ask me, you know, your name's Josh? Okay, so who are you? You know, like, who is Josh? I'd be like, he's a professor. That would be first answer if that's the most important thing to me. Because if that's the thing that I think has ultimate worth, I'll start to organize everything around it. Everything will start to point to it. Everything will start to be drawn to it. You see, that, that, that's why we tend to say that when something is, that, that shouldn't be our object of ultimate worth, which is anything besides God, why do we call it an idol? Because it's something that's drawing our worship that is not God. It's causing us to think it's important, and then what we're doing is we're moving, we're desiring after, we're moving towards that thing, okay? And so what you worship will begin to define what you think you are. That's why for us, why do we call ourselves Christians? Because our object of worship defines what we think is the ultimate good for us, what we should go after, what we are meant to desire after. Okay? The, this is a, there was a book called The Triumph of the Therapeutic by Philip Reith, written in the 1960s. It's a very complex book. If you read it, a lot of it will take a little while to get through, but when you read it, it sounds like he's just talking about 2020s America. It's fantastic. Uh, he was, a, philo- he was a, uh, a historian of psychology, an expert in the work of Sigmund Freud. And uh, he noted that there have m- been movements, broad movements on the kind of what we think we are, okay? There are a lot of other movements. Uh, out, in the, uh, out in your um, Welcome Center is a book called the, the uh, Strange, it's called Strange New World by Carl Truman, where he talks about some of the historical things that relate to why we think we are this way now. Why does the average person think they get to define a lot about themselves? Why does the average person think that who, uh, their sexuality is the most important thing about them? Why does the, all those things he starts to go through, really helpful. Um, I can't do that because it'd take too much time. I do that for my students in my uh, intro to philosophy class, and it's literally like 
15 different movements from just the 1600s on. So Reef, I think, has a good way of talking about it in just three big movements. What he says is, originally, right, like when you're talking about Greek philosophers, they considered man to be political. That was the big issue. Like if you take a look at Plato and Aristotle, they were always working around political philosophy. Part of the reason why is just ethical. One person can do some pretty bad things, but a whole city can do some really, really terrible things. And if corporate goods and corporate evils are more powerful, then we have to pay attention to the corporate. So that's why back then, if you were to ask someone, who are you? They'd probably say something like, I'm an Athenian. I am a Spartan. They would pick this nation state they were from, and they would associate them to this external collective people that they're involved with. Okay? Then what happens when, obviously, Christianity starts to take supremacy in the West, the Western person begins to define themselves pr primarily religiously. Right? Who are you? Well, I'm a Christian. I'm a Jew. I'm a Muslim. Do you see that? They're defined externally by their relationship to this organized religion. And he said what's going to happen is when the Industrial Revolution comes up, you have now individuals defining themselves economically because now the average person has a lot more money than they ever did. Right? Pop culture, as we know it in America, comes about because of the Industrial Revolution. Because at that point, it becomes better to make a money from a lot of people who have a little bit than for just trying to cater to rich people. You see that? So you don't have to write the great massive novel. If you could write a dime store novel that 14-year-old boys will like who suddenly have money because they're working in industry, then you could probably make more money with less effort. You see? So ec economics changed everything, but now at that point, people started to define themselves economically, externally, in relationship to the, the economy or the business that they're involved with. Who are you? I'm a steel worker. I'm a waiter. I'm an engineer. Okay? Now, this is where he says it changes. Once you get to the 20th century, based on, in his view, a misunderstanding of Freud, I think it's some misunderstanding of Freud, and also Freud's at fault, but it's, you are defined by yourself. Not externally related to the city, or to the religion, or to the economy. You are only self-related. All that matters about you is what you feel about yourself. You see that? Now, that's very different from the three prior movements because it's all internal. And that makes everything much more messy. Because if I were to say something like, if someone were to say, well, I'm a steel worker, I'm like, no, you're not. I've seen what you do for your job. We have an external thing we could point to to say that. I'm a Christian. No, you're not. You don't even believe the Bible. You don't believe Christ is the Son of God. You see? If I say, but everything about me is internally defined, and I say, well, they say, I'm a good person. I'm like, well, you know you're not. They're like, well, you're not allowed to tell. You don't know anything about me. You don't know what it feels like to be me. That changes the way that we have these discussions. Do you see that? And, and it, it said, these are such big movements, these movements, which is interesting that Reef mentions, and, and Carl Truman uh, reiterates this. If you were to ask a question that would make sense to one era, it probably wouldn't make sense to the other era. So, for example, if you were to go to economic man, someone right after the Industrial Revolution who works on the line and said to them, is your job fulfilling? They'd probably be like, I don't know what you're talking about. It's my job. That's how I make money. That's how my kids eat. You see that? If you ask someone now, is your job fulfilling? Every single person will have an answer. Do you see that? Because there's been a move in the way that we perceive what matters in this world, even as Christians. And we have to be careful of it. You see? So, this is, what, uh, this is what Philip Reef says. Religious man was born to be saved. Psychological man is born to be pleased. By the way, I, he, he doesn't, it's not that he doesn't believe in psychology, by the way, um, whatever he believes on it. But he, what he's saying is this, this misunderstanding of Freud that has led to this over-psychologization of the average individual, he says this is the issue. So he says, religious man was born to be saved. Psychological man is born to be pleased. The difference was established long ago when I believe the cry of the ascetic lost precedence to one feels the caveat of the therapeutic. So it, 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 and it's interesting because even, even the, the Greek, when it talks about uh, the word therapeo in Greek means to heal. But lately, it seems like the word therapeutic means to make someone feel good about it. Uh, yeah, and that doesn't seem to be the same type of thing. And that change in the perspective now affects the way that we have to deal with individuals. 
here are some of the characteristics that you're going to see, the major themes. What's going to happen is, is the, the modern self is not a, necessarily a consistent thing. It's not necessarily a unified thing. And the reason why is you have, since probably about 1600, all of these different philosophical movements that have added a little bit, and people pick and choose from all of those, and they use that to construct an idea of the self. Do you see that? So individuals that have been influential in this, just to name them, would be uh, Descartes, Jean-Jacques Rousseau, Immanuel Kant, Hegel, Kierkegaard, Marx, Freud, uh, the, uh, uh, Max Weber, uh, Jacques Derrida. I mean, the, there's a lot of people. Now, all of their philosophies are not consistent, but people take portions of it, and they try to use that to make the self, and now you have this kind of textured view of the self that's not always consistent. So I can't tell you what the average person thinks about the self. I can only tell you themes that are probably important to them. Okay? So the first one is the internality of the self. The self is defined by its own perceptions, feelings, etc. Thus, it is detached from physicality because what I feel about myself is more important than what my body is like. You see? It's detached from relationality because if you're a Christian, you're automatically defined by a relationship, your relationship to Christ. But the average person now thinks that they're defined, they're only self-defined. They're not defined by their relationships. Okay? And also, truth. Because truth is always a relational concept. Truth is always a correspond. Like, usually when we're talking about truth, we're talking about a correspondence, right? So if I say, you know, outside it's 85 degrees, you'd say that's false. Because my words don't correspond with the outside. If I say outside is 58 degrees, then you'd say that's true. Because my words correspond with the outside. Do you see that? So when we think about truth, we're taking some sort of correspondence. But if all that matters is my relationship to myself, corresponding to anything else does not matter. Therefore, truth is always going to be something internal to me, which is why you get that phrase pop up, I'm going to live my truth. There is only the truth. Truth is always a universal concept. So if it's your truth, it should be everybody else's truth. But they're trying to say that, no, it's internalized. Why? Because of the internality of the self. Okay? Uh, the second one is the plasticity of the self. The self is moldable. It's changeable. Which makes sense, right? If your feeling about yourself is primarily what defines you and your feelings can change, then your self can change. Yeah. So the plasticity of the self uh, is that the self is fluid and changeable. So that's why you're going to have— the movement was very quick from uh, we think gay marriage should be allowed to there are no genders. All gender is fluid. It's all spectrumatic. It's all moving in here and there. And you could have 85 different ones. Why? Well, it's because this belief in plasticity of the self. Sciences have unfortunately encouraged this by saying we can actually do things medically and, and surgically to change you into something else. You see that? And therefore, the, the, the view is, even though it's not true, is that the sciences also believe this. Science doesn't get to make choices like what it means to be a man or a woman. That's not a scientific issue, primarily. It's only a way, science can observe it, but it doesn't get to define things. And so what happens is this, this kind of view that it's defining it, that's caused some people to think, oh, science is on our side, when science doesn't get to talk about that at all. And thus people say, well, we go with the science. Science says that gender is, is changeable. Well, science doesn't say anything like that. Right? Science just says, I can do surgery on people. That doesn't seem to be the same type of thing. Thirdly is the sexualization of the self. The most important defining feature of oneself are related to sex. Okay? And that is largely after Freud. There's a lot of jokes about Freud, uh, like that's all he thinks about, and the reason why is that's all he thinks about. Like if you read his writings, that's all he talks about. But what happens is because of that, he thinks this is from I mean, at any stage of your life, this is the most important thing about you. So if you think about, and we obviously won't get into any detail here, but if you think about the problems that they're discussing in public schools related to this, this is not an issue of, oh, is this happening or is this not happening? It clearly was the goal from the 30s to the 50s on because of educational theory in Germany. The Frankfurt School of Sociology pushed this idea and then in the 50s, this became entrenched. And now, if you, take, if you want to see what we have to look forward to here, just look at what's already going on in Germany. If you look at what they're doing, like, for example, in um, uh, their preschools, 
or their daycares, you would be absolutely horrified. But it's related to, oh, this is the most important thing about it, so it has to be the most important thing about children too. I don't think children should be cared about that at all. That's not their issue. And, and, and when someone gets pretty old, they're not gonna care about that much either. There are times in our life where it matters because of various reasons, and there's times in our lives that it doesn't matter. That can't be a defining feature of you, and the most important thing about you, if it's not important to everybody. You see that? There are some Christians that God has called them to be single, and what matters is they have extra time to, to, to spend towards serving God. And they could use that singleness with grace. You see that? But if that's the case, then that can't be the most important thing about us. And the fact that it's not gonna matter to us in heaven means that can't be the most important thing about us because it won't even occur there. Do you see that? So the, this, this kind of view now makes it so that why, why is popular culture the way it is? Why I, um, so I was like raised to be a scholar, which is weird because I'm not, I wasn't like my, I was, grew up pretty poor actually. Um, my, my dad was born in a Japanese internment camp during World War II in uh, Roar, Arkansas, which means that my grandparents lost everything in the World War II. They were Japanese Americans, Christians, doing good ministry on the West Coast, but got taken. My, my grandfather fought for the American army, uh, but my grandma still was interned, and, and so my, um, my dad was born there. So we grew up pretty poor. But my dad, uh, he, was, he, he had health struggles his whole life. He, he wasn't expected to live out of childhood, and so he couldn't go out a lot, so he just read all the time. And he became probably top five smartest people I've ever known, even though he, he only finished high school. And he basically raised me from childhood to be a scholar. So he basically is like, oh, okay, you're gonna listen to this. This is WC's Claire de Lune. You need to tell me what you think about it. And I'm like, all right. I'm like, that sounds like music. No, you're gonna need to get a little bit more. All right. He'd be like nine years old, 10 years old. Here is the hunt for Red October. It's about geopolitics and nuclear submarines. And I'm like, I'm pretty sure I'm not gonna understand that. He's like, yeah, I don't care. You're gonna read it. I'm like, all right, let's read it. I read it. He's like, what do you think? And I'm like, I don't know if I think anything. I don't understand what's going on. So he just made me do that. And so from childhood, he made me, he would just expose me to different types of music so that he could be the one that helps me learn to criticize it before the world tells me it's a good thing. Do you see that? So with our kids, our kids are homeschooled, which means that this is much more up to us to do this. And I, so what I do is, uh, the, the, the way that my wife and I think about this is that this is um, controlled exposure. I'm gonna let them see certain things and show them why I like certain things and why I don't like certain things. I'm gonna let them listen to certain types of music. So I make them listen to music all the time. And my daughter Kennedy, my youngest, she's 11, is like a savant at identifying music. Like anything that's on any of my playlists, within two seconds, she will know what, what the song is and who, who wrote it. Well, anyway, I was trying to take them through decade by decade through pop music, because they tend to like pop music, which I'm like, come on, like, it's, it's fine, but there's other types of music too. Um, they're, they're finally getting into classical music, which is nice also, uh, and a lot of other things. Made them listen to 80s, and they're like, oh, this is interesting. It sounds very 80s. And I'm like, well, that's, there's a good reason. And then we went into the 90s, and when he got in the 90s, there was a few songs that I couldn't have them listen to because they would have explicit lyrics or clearly have innuendo. 20, the 20s to 2010, there was a good deal of them that started to have explicit lyrics and have innuendo. By the time we got to 2010 to 20, the 2020s, I couldn't let them listen to almost any of them. That seems to be a pretty stark movement, but it's largely related to what we think matters most about us and what people are saying typically in, in popular culture related to philosophy is uh, the desires of the flesh. You see them? Um, a couple other significant areas is expressive individualism. This is the idea that the self must be affirmed by others. The most important thing for me to do is to express myself, and the most important thing for you to do is affirm it. Do you see that? Part, there's various reasons why this is the case. If, for example, you and I have a standard between us, right, the same type of standard, then we can tell if one of us is right or wrong. But if everything about me is my own perceptions or feelings about myself, then there's no real good way of dealing with right or wrong. So anybody who tells you you're wrong in this view is they're wrong. Which means there's no discussing, no arguing this issue. This is just now claims. 
And then the idea ends up being, is this related to some ideas that are going on in Marxism that relate to uh, uh, certain theories that are coming out of sociological schools in the 30s and 40s? Means that if anybody now attempts to disagree with you on this, they're probably trying to gain power over you. Which is why people are so, uh, so standoffish when we talk about these types of topics. Okay? Uh, we also have authentic individualism. One is only responsible to oneself. What does it mean for me to live authentic? It's for me to live out what I think about myself. Okay, it's interesting. If you were to take a look at this authenticity talk, it becomes heavily popular uh, by a guy named Soren Kierkegaard, a Danish philosopher theologian uh, in the 19th century. Uh, I, I, I'm really, I like Kierkegaard, not only because my, my mom's maiden name is Sorensen, uh, but Soren Kierkegaard is... Uh, he likes to make his own nation uncomfortable. Which, by the way, for a philosopher, that's dangerous. Socrates got killed straight out for doing that. And Kierkegaard, he, he wrote under pseudonyms, and I'm probably he think he was, he's probably thinking, I don't want to become like Socrates. But what he thought is Denmark thinks that it's a Christian nation, and everybody in Denmark thinks they're Christian by being part of the nation. Not because of a relationship with Christ, but because of where they were born. And he says that can't be true. So he tries to do things to bother the people into realizing that faith is a, a, a much different thing than what they thought it was, okay? But what's interesting, he talks about, and he talks about in various places, and I think uh, you see it a lot in uh, the way that he does it in Sickness Unto Death, but he thought we should live authentically. You should live out what you really are, and what you really are is a creation of God. The only authentic life is a responsible life, because that's what you are. You see that? But what you see now is that type of authenticity was taken from Kierkegaard. The theological content was moved out of it. It changed into existentialism and postmodernism. And when that happens, then, it's, uh, then it becomes, uh, what is my authentic self? It's to live without responsibility to any one of you. It's to only live responsible to what I think about myself. That's the only thing that matters. And thus, authenticity does the exact opposite of what Kierkegaard intended, which is, if you're authentic, you should feel like you're responsible. But what is now? If you're authentic, then you're not responsible to anyone besides your own perception. Uh, thirdly on this slide, the politicalization of the self. The self is always involved in power structures and therefore is always in the fight for political supremacy. Okay, after Marx, Marx says, you know, Pretty much all of the economics and what goes on in our lives probably is related to the political. And then after him, people, the, the kind of post, the both right and left, there's Marxists that go left and there are Marxists that go right, which is super weird, but they, go, they always go extreme. You don't take Marx and you're like, hey, I'm gonna be middle of the road. They just like take Marx and they go nuts. And both sides tend to take Marx and they say, it's not just that most everything that we deal with is political, everything you deal with is political. All things are political. So if someone tries to disagree with you, it's probably political. Not like part of politics, but it's, it's going to be them trying to gain power over you. They're trying to gain power over a particular people group. Do you see that? By the way, does that happen? It clearly does happen. So it, like when Marx is used as a description of what happens at times, that's clearly the case. There's clearly people who have tried to exert power over others and, and try to suppress them try to uh, um, uh, try to oppress them, right? I, and I, like, for example, uh, uh, the Japanese during World War II, African Americans from the history, I mean, all the way till now, uh, Latinos in Southern California have done it in various times with various legislation there that was made to attack Latinos. Or in, in California, they had legislation that would say, if you're from China, you can't get, it doesn't matter. This is like 100 years ago. 120 years ago, you can't get citizenship because you're from China. Doesn't matter what, what they're letting anybody be citizens except for Chinese and then eventually Japanese, okay? Well, yeah, we, oppression does occur. There are power structures uh, that occur. Sometimes this is done politically, right? And the, uh, oh man, sometimes I have to, for the good of my students, just destroy their childhood. I don't mean to do it, but I do. But one of them is I showed them a propaganda picture about Japanese Americans during World War II, showing them all as um, terrorists. 
And uh, once I showed them who drew it, they all wept a little bit inside because it was written by, it was drawn by Dr. Seuss. Dr. Seuss clearly was racist. If you don't, if you don't understand that, you don't know what he did. He was clearly racist. He wrote propaganda pictures to try to get them to, and to, to specifically in, get Japanese interned, okay? Now, that doesn't mean that everything he did ever was racist. It doesn't mean that we didn't have some Dr. Seuss books, but I actually read through all of them before I let my kids look at them because some of them clearly had things in it that were racist. So these things happen, but the problem is, is this makes every discussion political. I don't think everything is political. I think when I, sometimes when I try to get someone to do the right thing, it's not for me to try to gain power. It's because I think it's gonna hurt them if they don't learn this thing. But now this basically imputes on everybody bad intention all the time, which makes discussion difficult. Uh, what are the outcomes of the modern self? Individuals have a religious devotion to the sense of self. Since you can only live based on who you think you are, you're gonna, you're gonna protect it. You're gonna fight for it. And it also means that the most antisocial tendencies of humanity are, um, are stoked. Because you're not, no longer defined externally related to other people or institutions, you're only defined internally. And this leads to things like the rejection of relationships or the rejection of anything like a stable relationship. The only thing relationships we're in are the relationships we think we can get something out of someone from. So we sanction selfishness, right? Anytime you see all of these discussions of uh, self-love or, or those types of things, Scripture's pretty clear, right? 2 Timothy 3, how do we know the end times are coming and things are getting really bad? Men become lovers of self, right? But this is sanctioned, endorsing of irresponsibility, right? Who are the, the, who are the athletes, pop culture figures, singers, actors, who are the ones that we respect? The ones that break the rules. You see that? I, I was uh, watching Hulu and they had a commercial come up because um, I don't have enough money to get rid of the commercials. So I watched <laughs> watch the commercials. And it was funny because they were talking about all the, the different things on Hulu. And um, it's like, it was hilarious because it was like for the rule breakers, for the rebels, for the revolutionaries. And I'm like, that's interesting. Notice that it, like, it didn't say, like, for the people who obey their parents, for the people who do the, go under the speed limit, for the people who they vote because they're supposed to. You know what I'm saying? None of those things, but that's because that's the way that we think of the self now. It is meant to be, or in some ways, optimum if it's irresponsible. Uh, and then the objectifying of others. Meaning that if others aren't going to be important in and of themselves, like we think that as Christians, right? Because everybody's in the image of God. That's enough. But if you are thinking everybody's just their perception of themselves, then everybody else is just something to be used by you, which means that they're going to become objects for you to use. Okay? This is what uh, C.S. Lewis says. They still connect thinking. This is, in the, um, this is early on in Screwtape Letters. So Screwtape Letters is like a demon trying to tell uh, another demon what's the best way to keep Christianity down, more or less. And it says this, uh, they still connected thinking with doing and were prepared to alter their way of life as a result of a chain of reasoning. But what with the weekly press and other such weapons, which is interesting, he's going after newspapers. This is a long time ago. This is the 40s, right? Uh, we have largely altered that. Your man has been accustomed ever since he was a boy to have a dozen incompatible philosophies dancing about together inside his head. He doesn't think of doctrines as primarily true or false but is academic or practical, outworn or contemporary, conventional or ruthless. Jargon, not argument, is your best ally. Best ally in keeping him from the church. Don't waste your time trying to make him think that materialism is true, the idea that there's only physical stuff. Make him think it is strong or stark or courageous. That is the philosophy of the future. That's the sort of thing he cares about. That's pretty prescient, huh? Because you see it now. People don't try to make arguments. They just make claims. And they try to say, if you, if you, like, for example, come out, you are brave. Not that you are right or this is true. You are brave. It's a courageous thing. The best thing he's going to say is that, that, that Satan's going to use is not going to be using arguments because it's always on our side. It's going to be moving us away from arguments. Some of the outcomes, other outcomes of the modern self, categories such as truth and reality are pretty unimportant. Religion becomes a manner of, of uh, self-discovery by experience. 
morality is privatized. So it's not that I should do this because this is the that morality for all people. It's whatever, what is my morals? What does it mean for me to live out my truth? And that means that things that were usually understood as immoral are discussed as either innocuous, they're not that bad, or they're actually beneficial. And that's becoming more and more the case. Lastly, individuals are prone to sadness, anxiety, and anger. Okay? Yeah, if, if you... If you could only live in this world by understanding who you are and your self is always at play, always fluid, always changing, never stable, then you're gonna struggle because one is, the things that you think are good for you are the things you're gonna go after and if you fail to get them, then you're gonna be sad. And you're, you're not someone who's able to, to a sovereign enough to make sure that you get them, right? If you... Uh, have to secure your own self and who you are in this world and there's a lot of people who disagree with you and you can't control them and you're trying to get your way, then you're going to be anxious constantly. And if people oppose you, then you will fight for it. So a lot of these things that we're seeing struggles now with, we see them in epidemic proportions in almost every sociological study over the last uh, 11 years are related to some degree to misunderstandings of who we are. This is what the outcome that Kierkegaard says in The Sickness Unto Death. He wrote this in 19, uh, 1849. Sounds like now. This formula that the self is constituted by another, meaning that we are created by God, is the expression for the total dependence of this relation, the expression for the fact that the self cannot itself attain and remain in equilibrium and rest by itself. Meaning, the fact that we're created by God and this understanding means that we know that we can't give ourselves stability or peace because it can only be secured by another. And then he goes on to say, and, and, uh, and the rest by itself, but only by relating itself to that power which constituted the whole relationship, the, meaning only by us relating to God who made us and brought us into relationship with him, uh, can we be stable. But what happens, he says, is if by himself and by himself only, he would abolish the despair. If he tries to find hope in himself without going out to God, he says he's actually going to expend himself. He's going to labor, and he expends, all the labor he expends, he is only laboring himself deeper into a deeper despair. He says, once we start to define ourselves apart from everything else, especially, specifically for him, apart from God, it is going to lead to hopelessness, and that is what's leading to a lot of the crisis that we're having right now, okay? So what do we do? As a church, as friends who have people who struggle with this, as parents who have kids who are going to know other kids who struggle with this, what do we do? One, I think we have to understand our complicity with our culture. When, when we, we, sometimes we let these things come into the church, and we have to always be careful of that. And when we do let it come into the church, we have to deal with it. Okay, um, one example is, so I grew up in the 80s, and like when my kids hear about the 80s, they're like, it's like you grew up in the Wild West. Like, was there any rule of law? And I'm like, no, it's like, it was crazy. It was like, I would wake up in the morning at like six and then I would just leave my house at the summer. And I'd go over to my friend's house. I'd, I'd ride my bike across town. And then I'd come up and all, as long as I got there before the street lights went up, I had done my duty for the day. Like nowadays that just doesn't happen, right? So anyway, I, when I was growing up, the big thing, the big push was self-esteem. That's how you get people to not be on drugs. That's how you prevent antisocial behavior is self-esteem. That seems to be a problem. Scripture doesn't say that I'm supposed to esteem myself. It never says anything like that. But many churches bought into that. And now we have people not realizing that, you know, part and parcel of you being a good parent to your children is telling them when they're wrong and telling, making sure they know that they're insufficient on themselves, but they have a good God. It's not about self-esteem. So we have to make sure we pay attention to this within our own churches. Secondly, I think we let God define who we are. These are just a couple of them. We won't get too much into this. I, I'm guessing you guys probably hear this preached pretty frequently. Uh, you are created, which means you are reliant. God doesn't, God is not created. He's not reliant upon anyone. That's one of the big distinctions that the Catholic scholastics were very clear on. That he is creator means he doesn't need, he is asse, he is from himself. But that you are created means that you're always in need. Secondly, we're loved. God loves us. Not just believers, but he, he actually wants all men to be saved. 
Now, he's going to make choices because of the entirety of his being and his plan that that's not going to be the case. But he loves everyone. We are redeemed, right? As Christians, we are redeemed. That should be a heavy factor in the way that we think about ourselves. I struggle with sin. I struggle with sin. So the two big sins that I've struggled with historically are anger and worry. Okay, and, and I've struggled with them for a long time, and I've gotten much better on them. When I was in uh, college, I struggled with worry so much that I, spent, I, I stayed up for a whole finals week. Like, I had insomnia for a whole finals week. And, and it was bad enough that about hour 70, I started hallucinating. And it got worse from there. Um, and I realized once I got to seminary, oh, this is a lack of trust in God. And so once I worked on my prayer life and understanding who God is, that changed things. And so the last time I had insomnia was in 2016 when my father passed away. And it was for about a month, and then I worked through it theologically, and then it went away, right? But I struggle with those, and I still struggle with them today. It's like my son Hunter, he can, he can push buttons that make me angry. But why do I think that I could have victory over that? Because I have been free from the bondage of sin by the purchase of the blood of Christ. That I am redeemed means that I am no longer enslaved to my history. I am defined more by my future than my past because I am a new creation pointing to the end. I am not what I was. You see that? So we are redeemed. We are adopted. We are stewards. What we have, we are stewards of. It's time. It's money. It's gifts and abilities. These are things that we steward. And, And I think it's important a concept that we, did, we probably underutilize in the Christian faith, right? Why do I tell my kids they should be getting pretty much A's and B's? Even They're homeschooled, so we can make them get whatever grade we want. But fortunately, my wife's pretty good about saying, nope, you're going to get what you earn. And I'm like, but I tell my son Hunter, because he was doing bad on a bunch of math tests, I'm like, yeah, you should never get lower than a B. And he's like, why should I never get lower than a B on a math test? I'm like, because you're pretty good at math. Which means God has given you the ability to do that. So that means if you're not doing good on it, you're not being a good steward. What I don't tell them is you need to be good at math because it'll give you a good job, get you money, and you'll be stable in life. Because then I'm set up and I idle for them, which is that their stability can be bought by their work through a vocation. That is not what I want to give to them. I think you should work because God tells you to work and pay for your family. If you have a family hunt, you're going to have to pay for them. And God asks you to do that. But if you have gifts, then you're a steward. So you need to use it, okay? So um, another response is we must develop community. What happens is there is something compelling about a alternate community, especially for individuals who are struggling with the antisocial nature of the modern self so that they don't have deep relationships, so that more and more people now are lonely. And there was just an article that came out that said being lonely is like more dangerous than being a smoker to your health you will probably live shorter if you were constantly lonely. Why? Because we were created by God to be in community. It was not good that Adam was by himself. Creation was only very good once Eve was created and they could be in community with each other and with God. And if people don't have that, then we need to show them a compelling picture of what a church that loves one another looks like that they don't see. They don't see that community. You see that? So we provide a compelling community. It should revolve around worship and fellowship, and it should be, uh, we should be constructive members of culture um, without, quest, without uh, quietism, meaning we can't just sit back when culture is having all these arguments and never get in the argument. But when we get in this argument, we need to be wise, and we need to be, and this is very hard for me, not cranky, because I'm very good at pummeling people. I'm not very good at loving people and being gracious with them. And I'm not very good at taking reproof when I'm wrong. So we have to just humbly be able to do these types of things and engage in culture. Another thing we need to do is we need to teach the whole counsel of God. Right? There's sometimes people don't know who they are defined by scripture because they don't know scripture enough. So we need to, we can't avoid discussing contemporary topics, which is part of the reason why we're here, and I'm I'm glad that you guys are doing this at the church. We need to model and develop Christian thinking. We need to look at historical sources even to see what they're saying. Notice how I've told you how Kierkegaard basically predicted 160 years ago the struggles we're having now. Some of the the things we don't see coming up because we don't look at the people in the past who've already began to predict them. 
where we're going within public schools now, some, are, some public schools better than others, but where we're going in public schools has been defined for 100 years. And that's part of the reason why we need to be engaged with that topic, because this isn't something new, but we don't know because we don't know the history of it. Okay, so we have to think about those. Um, we need to shape our intuitions through biblical worship. We must aid people in submitting their feelings to Scripture. We need to w- worship together through singing and encouraging one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. We need to hear the Word of God together and live life with one another and be in fellowship so that we realize that even if I struggle with the feeling, I know this is a good thing, and therefore I submit my feelings to what God asks me in Scripture. We need to have a compelling theology of, of sex in the body. This is one thing that we're not, the Protestants are, we're not great at it. Catholics are not great at it for other reasons. They're incorrect on it, partially because of the way that Augustine took up Platonic philosophy. Augustine, I love Augustine, and he's really good, but every time he takes up too much Plato, you could pretty much tell you that he's going to think that marriage is pretty bad or unimportant. I'm like, that's not helpful. We need to have a more compelling vision, so we need, we need people to do work in this area. Christians, theologians, uh, pastors, philosophers to do work in this area. We must declare the truth of God. Talk to unbelievers. Show the inconsistency of how their individualism is applied. You're saying that I can't tell you you're wrong because it's your truth, but you're telling me I'm wrong. You're saying all, all identity is fluid. Then what do I mean with your name? Who am I talking about? Have a good gospel, have a gospel orientation to your speech and thought. Because a lot of these types of arguments, these types of discussions can prevent us from sharing the gospel well because we get angry or we are okay with making someone else angry. We need to have a gospel orientation. We want people to know the gospel. If I know someone I'm discussing with this is getting heated, I will just end the discussion and say, hey, let's come back to this. And it's not because I'm losing. It's because I want the gospel to be preached. Right? We need to display a, a life that is consistent with our message. More people that I, like, more people of my friends back home in California aren't in the church because of perceived hypocrisy. And some of them were absolutely correct. So our life and our message need to be consistent if we're going to be, have to approach difficult topics like this. Okay? Uh, think within the church on how to develop, to de- develop this within children. So I, I tend to think if you want a good change in church culture, top down, bottom up. Have leaders that are teaching this and teach children to do it young. If you teach children to think theologically young, they will continue to think theologically. Right? Um, my son Hunter, is he, he says he wants to be a professor, but that's mostly because he wants summers off. Uh, and so uh, he, I have three girls too, but Hunter is the best illustrator maker. And anyway, um, we taught him from childhood to think theologically. And so when he was a, a young kid, probably six or younger, he says to me, Dad, do you know how you know God is all-powerful? He actually said, do you know how God is omnipotent? And I'm like, I'm surprised you know that word. So no, let's see how this goes. So he says, Dad, do you know how you know that God is omnipotent? I'm like, no. He's like, because he gets to love as he chooses. That's extremely profound. But it's because he's just taught from childhood to think theologically. We develop this young we teach it from the pulpit, okay? Uh, and then these are the last two slides. Ooh, we're almost gonna be on time. That's perfect. Uh, re- recognize the struggles of the unbeliever. If you can't live, see, it's interesting. God will let you live without him. Not forever, but at least for your time on this earth. He'll let you live without him. You cannot live without yourself. You see what I'm saying? You cannot make choices, Go know what you desire if you don't have a perception of yourself. No one does. Which means, if this is so central to people, asking them to fundamentally give up their identity is a big ask. It is not like asking someone to give up a job for the Christian faith. It is like asking a religious person, it's like asking a Muslim to give up Allah and their family and their community. You see that? And that's a big ask. Because when we, we ask this, we think that it's not a big deal. It's a huge deal. And we need to be we need to recognize that so that we can be gracious with individuals that are struggling in this area. 
okay? Uh, view individuals as persons and not projects. We're not fixing people. We just want people to know Christ. God will fix people as they, right? People will be sanctified if they know Christ, but we can't just think like, my goal is to fix a bunch of people. No, my goal is that people know Christ and God will do the fixing, okay? He's done it in our lives. Uh, thirdly, recognize the common plight of sin, right? Before we want to say like, look at us versus look at you. Hey, we all are struggling with sin. So let's be clear on those types of things. Uh, Fourth, the history of the church has been hurt more by divorce than anything in the LGBTQ movement. So there's a lot of sin to go around and we have to be careful about saying this is the only sin. No, there's a lot of sins. Doesn't mean that we don't address it. It doesn't mean it's very destructive. It means though that we have to be careful about the way that we approach it. Uh, Fourthly, live out the expansive nature of grace. And fifthly, encourage actual authenticity. Do you want to be authentic? then live as a creation of, uh, of God and recognize Christ. That's the only way. And then lastly, be a people of hope. We are, all individuals are created to live in light of hope. We don't think that, but that's how we do. Every decision you make is based on hope. Why? Because you don't try to change the past. You try to make decisions based on what's gonna ho- go in the future. So when I decide to leave this place, I wanna, like, I wanna g- grab a drink uh, on my way home down to Cedarville, it's, I'm going to make the choice to drive my car in the direction of a gas station so that in the future, I have a hope that I'll get a drink. Everything about our activity is oriented towards the future. So the natural attitude that we actually live our lives every day is hope. When people don't have hope, then it's destructive in every aspect of their life. And we are the only ones that have ultimate hope. So we point people to what they could have what their future could be. And when we do this, when we recognize the hope that we have, we display it to others, then hopefully we can show others that this could be their hope. And that's probably a greater change than just simply having an argument on social media. Yeah? All right, let me pray for our time and then we'll be done. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the chance to talk about these topics. Lord, allow us to live out your gospel well, love others, be gracious, and to recognize our own struggles and sins so that we humbly come to these types of interactions and seek to become lesser so that your son Christ can become greater. In your son Jesus' name we pray, amen. Thank you.